Hey there, Lexical Tones listeners. Before we begin this episode featuring Garrett McQueen and Scott Blankenship of the Triloquy podcast, I want to put this episode in perspective and give it a little context. Quite often we pre-record our episodes, and this one was recorded during this past summer. At the time, both Garrett and Scott were employed at Minnesota Public Radio, both as part of Classical 24, which was co-produced by American Public Media and Public Radio International. Garrett was fired on September 10th. I encourage you to listen to Triloquy's Opus 66 episode to hear official statements from Garrett and Scott on this matter. We at Adjective New Music wish Garrett well as he proceeds through this difficult time. On with the show. You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Sharp, blended, trill. A proud native of Memphis, Tennessee, Garrett McQueen has performed in venues across the country, including Los Angeles' Disney Hall, Detroit's Max M. Fisher Music Center, and New York's Carnegie Hall. As a media personality, Garrett is dedicated to the diversification of classical music and the advancement of black musicians in the field. Scott Blankenship grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, in a pretty benign and stereotypical Midwest middle-class existence. Over the course of almost 15 years, Scott held many different managerial and on-air roles in public radio. Together, Garrett and Scott host the podcast Triloquy, true and real conversations that challenge the status quo of classical music. So great to have both of you on. I mean, let's let's just start from the beginning. You know, how did Triloquy start? How did you guys get together and have this idea to to make this? It was first a radio show, right? And then a podcast. Well, um, so uh, Scott and I both work for a, a service called Classical 24, C24, and we have uh, shifts on the radio that uh, come after one another. So, you know, Scott was also a big part of my onboarding um, because the uh, overnight show that I host um, is the one that he hosted uh, previously. So, you know, so just just my uh, coming uh, to Minnesota and working for American Public Media, uh, Scott and I uh, got a lot of FaceTime. So, you know, from there, just hanging out. And, um, you know, I had the idea of, of trying to do a podcast because I was listening to so many podcasts, you know, in, in, in my day-to-day. And a lot of the um, energy, a lot of the conversations... Uh, that were happening in these podcasts, I didn't hear happening uh, in any classical media. So um, understanding uh, Scott's, you know, desire to kind of uh, find the uh, find the next thing and 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 to to freshen up radio or and content creation, uh, we uh, uh, decided to work on this thing together. And um, yeah, it's called Triloquy. Well, the, it started largely. I wanted to just sort of help get the project going and the idea was that I would just quote unquote produce meaning he would record things and I put them together in pro tools bounce it out and I started ending up in interviews somehow and now here we are so it's evolved from this idea I thought I'm going to be uh, the guy holding the door so to speak and you know if you stand there holding the door too long then that's all you're going to end up doing. So I I jumped in and ended up being a co-host. You're not in every interview, to be fair. No, that's true. That's true. 
Yeah. So, uh, I mean, let's let's talk. You you guys still host radio shows. So, what what kinds of stuff do you do in your in your shows? Oh well, I mean, you know, that's that's the the easy job, you know. So we uh, take um, you know playlists. We we take music for however uh, many hours uh, we're on the air, and uh, we try to frame it. You know, we we put context around. Uh, what folks are hearing and uh, even the way uh, we do that uh, can be different. Uh, A lot of folks have been uh, trying to interview me and talk to me lately about um, how I've uh, shifted what I say on the radio in light of um, the protests and everything that are going on. You know, there are always those sorts of connections to be made, but, you know, it can be as deep as exploring uh, connections between police brutality and this black composer or this piece of black classical music, or as simple as, you know, having the Moonlight Sonata and telling people, if you can, look out your window for a second. Mm -hmm. Do you see the moon? That's what someone once saw, and they thought of this piece of music or whatever we want to put around it. You know, uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's it's different from host to host, but that's how I see it. Just uh, creating context around what yeah, people are hearing, like an aesthetic. You know, you want to make people feel it. If um, if you tell somebody in 1785 when <laughs> you know, yeah. their eyes are going to glaze over, and you know. It, but if you start talking about human feelings, what was going on in the world when this was being recorded, what was going on in the composer's life, you know, that might impact it, that might, uh, maybe you could hear pain or joy or uh, ease, you know. Or just making it personal, you know, so when I'm on the uh, radio later on this week, um, maybe I would say something like, you know, uh, on Monday, uh, when Scott and I recorded uh, our podcast, uh, we were sitting around drinking this really awesome Belgian beer. You know who else really liked drinking beer or whatever? You know, just just making it real uh, for the people, making these people's um, lives more real so that, you know, in a way the music is more alive, the music is more real. That's yeah. what I convinced myself of anyway. It's working, sure. don't you think? Yeah. I guess it's working. They're, they're still paying me. <laughs> yeah, the, the Brock's card still works when we roll up to the door. <laughs> right. <laughs> so how much how much creative control do you have over the, the radio shows as opposed to, obviously, with the podcast, you have complete creative control? Yeah. Um, we we uh, work with uh, music programmers who, um, who uh, put things... Uh, on our playlist based on, you know, I have conversations with the programmers all the time about, you know, the the conversations I want to have with people, the way I want to frame it. Um, even so, I'll, I'll find myself shifting things um, at the last minute. Um, and and that is, that's something that um, has proven to, to be successful and engaging and uh, impacting for the, uh, for the audience. So um, while it's not 100% uh, percent autonomy, um, I, I think there's been a shift in, uh, you know, the way we all sort of approach our on-air jobs, you know, the opportunities yeah. we have, the responsibility we have. And all of us um, have our own distinct styles, that, you know, certain pieces will be better suited to one host than another, you know. And uh, when I'm on in the evenings, there's a lot of longer, you know, 25 plus minute pieces. And um, uh, Garrett has an opportunity more frequently than I do because uh, his uh, background as a musician, he's got this deep well of, of pieces that he might plug in to illustrate the theme of the hour better. Um, I tend to, um, 
wait, I guess, would be a, a, a I'm waiting on the uh, on the the music director to um, thread things in. You know, it's more of a slower transition when I'm on the air. Whereas Garrett, when he makes a substitution in the moment, you know, that's um, that's immediate impact. Uh, I'm I'm more watching the the gradual transition. He's relying on his voice, is what he's doing. <laughs> mm. <laughs> See, I have to make up for it somehow. Hey, if it's what I've got. <laughs> Sorry, I hit the mic. You, yeah, if you it's got, what man. I've got, then that's then I'm using it. <laughs> there you are. There you go, man. So, for those listeners who hear this and want to jump over to your podcast, what are they going to hear? What are you covering? And particularly, how are you covering it? So, um, you know, one of the big things that I brought uh, to my job on the radio with American Public Media is the idea that uh, the playlist needs to uh, not only be more alive, but uh, be more diverse. Okay. So, when it comes to Triloquy, uh, we're focusing on um, music and arts adjacent conversations that um, kind of uh, explore things that uh, you can't really explore on uh, classical radio. So, uh, for example, uh, later on uh, this evening, Scott and I are uh, recording um, an opus of the podcast where we're going to talk about uh, Louis Farrakhan as a violinist. A lot of people did not know. I did not know. I discovered this recently. So uh, we have a couple interviews uh, to share. Uh, excuse me. And, um, you know, with, with the conversation of race being so heightened uh, these days, it's uh, I, it's a really great opportunity um, to explore some uh, dialogue at the intersection of uh, classical classical music, um, race, um, and, and that sort of, you know, trill, if you will, just aesthetic that we try to maintain um, as that classical music podcast that's going to talk about things that um, most of the others might not. Agreed. And the the form of the podcast is really interesting to me. So, you know, in this your second season, season two, you you know, you guys put up on your website and have been practicing it that the form of the podcast follows four movements, like a like a symphonic form. Or yeah, uh, did, yeah. did you compare it to Sonata Allegro at one point? Yeah, sure. Um, and I don't want to get uh, too deep into the woods of, of music right. theory because I've been liberated from uh, grad school. But uh, basically, <laughs> but basically um, uh, we decided to... Uh, so in season one, what, what it uh, started as uh, was short conversations between me and Scott and uh, followed by uh, the bulk of the uh, opus being an interview, some conversation with someone from the outside, uh, me and that person, sometimes uh, all three of us, um, and then a short uh, conclusion. Well, in season two, uh, we decided we wanted to uh, try to be uh, as creative um, and as uh, sort of fresh as we could uh, with this, you know, uh, brand new season um, and, and the many other transitions that the podcast went through. So I thought of uh, doing a, a form a movement structure uh, would be fun. It would give uh, Scott and I the opportunity uh, to kind of talk about what's going on in the world more. Definitely to be more topical. Yeah, yeah. to, um, you know, to, uh, to tie in uh, music with uh, sort of things we're thinking about, things we're feeling, conversations that are happening, um, and then actually putting some use to that word, triloquy, because, you know, we, we always thought of, you know, unapologetically real conversations, stories, triloquies, you know, and uh, now we get to do that uh, in a real way on uh, every opus. I, I think the uh, biggest bit of uh, feedback 
uh, I've gotten so far since uh, the launch of season two is how the new uh, structure really works. So we're going to uh, continue to uh, tweak things and uh, polish things up as much as we can and just let this thing evolve as it goes. When we were with uh, American Public Media the whole first season, you know, we were working sometimes two or three weeks in advance. And that's not to say that the interviews weren't interesting, but sometimes the information got stale in in that time frame. And now... Especially, um, especially right now, in the current moment, information can, you know, what happened three days ago is already pretty much old news. That's right, yeah. And so uh, we've been... We've been hauling ass, you know, to, to make sure that we're getting these things out. Um, we record on Monday and they're out on Wednesday. So, yeah, Monday night into Tuesday morning, there's a, a whole lot of activity going on. And so it's much more topical. And, and even if, you know, and it's not so much the idea that, you know, three days old news doesn't work. But, you know, if folks can count on us, you know, every week, you know, the next time we're here, you know, we want to be able to talk about what has happened since we talked to folks last, especially if it's something big, you know. Right. So um, yeah. I'll, I'll throw out uh, another uh, example. You know, when we record uh, later on this evening, uh, we have to talk about the film composer Ennio Morricone, um, yeah. who, who passed away today. And, you know, um, I, I feel like our listeners would expect us to talk about that to to at least you know bring oh, yeah. it up and uh we we can't do we couldn't do that um when we were uh working with american public media you know for many for many reasons it's, it's not that you know it wasn't allowed but you know working in advance was just the much safer thing when you have so many more you know hands to go through and, and ears and qc processes and, and things you know so well there's a pipeline you know, right. I mean, six, as it would be with any right, organization, right. sixty podcasts a month come out of that building. You know? Right. So they, yeah, they they want to make sure that everything's going to be hitting the timeline. Right. But 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 now that the project, you know, is is ours, uh, you know, solely, um, we we can do things like engage the audience, you right. know, more in real time, and I think it's uh, been a real benefit. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, listening to the past two or three weeks of your guys' episodes, I you know. In, in your first section, the, the accidentals. Yeah. And the last section, the triloquy, I really, it, it's almost like, it's almost like we're getting kind of, you know, classical music, new music news. And I actually really appreciate that. I would hate for anyone to call us the news. <laughs> no. But that's the function that we're also sure. getting from it, you know, like, you know, and, and I was, I was going to talk about this a little bit later, but, um, you know, you guys are so kind of plugged in to to what's happening. And for right now, the majority of that is all happening online. Yeah. And I was kind of wondering, you know, your guys's, you know, take on like how how do you see social media? How do you how do you see social media influencing or affecting the musical community? Good bad, neutral, whatever, like what kind of trends are you seeing? Because it does seem like you guys are really plugged in to what's going on. I, I feel like people um, kind of uh, inappropriately assume uh, classical radio hosts uh, spend their weekends in the concert hall or at this chamber concert, <laughs> you know. So, um, you know, the fact that uh, the, the the tragedy that, you know, all of these orchestras have had to shut their doors didn't really impact my, 
you know, uh, consumption of classical music at all, you know. So with so many people going to that digital platform, I feel like people were coming to my house. They were they were coming to my arena. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. keeping up with what's going on, um, it, it, in my opinion, has, has only been easier because everyone has to be on that digital platform. That's true. That's true. Um, I, you know, I'm 50 years old. I don't really get Twitter. I mean, I know that it's going on, <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I stay on the porch when, where social media is concerned. I can tell you that in this, uh, these last few months, our listenership to the radio has gone way up, you know, mm-hmm. so that, um, not only are people listening through a device, but just the, you know, the terrestrial broadcast is also getting a bump. So old school. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I benefit so, from the old school too. So hell yeah. Right. Cheers. <laughs> Since you have the Triloquy platform to kind of engage with the stuff that's happening week by week, do you, in your, you know, in your own social media, um, consumption or engagement, do you guys engage or do you just kind of I step do. back? You do? Okay. I engage, um, you know, <laughs> um, and, and, and this, is, this has been something that um, I, I've had to really think a lot about even since uh, coming on at American Public Media because, you know, it gets to a point to where you're no longer just speaking for yourself. You're always seen as sort of the representative of, of this organization. So, as that's grown, uh, I've had to think about it a lot for myself, but I've also had to think about it uh, when it comes to Triloquy. I can't, you know, just talk the talk um, on the podcast and not walk the walk in real life. So I've uh, really become dedicated to engaging as many um, people who engage me um, on social media uh, as possible uh, to be uh, honest uh, and unapologetic um, as I dare and and to just uh, present the real me. Um, one of the things I really appreciated um, about Facebook way back when, you know, being a being in the inaugural class of Facebook was that mm-hmm. um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg said we only have uh, one us, you know, and even if that uh, even even if that sense of self is represented uh, on different platforms, digital, real life, if you play a sport, if you're a musician, whatever, you know, that's still you. So um, I, I've always tried to be uh, uh, really cognizant of that from the beginning. Um, and I continue to be. Scott leaves all that uh, all that dirty work to me, though. <laughs> well, I have to because you know what's going on. Um, I have to say, though, that uh, seeing as how I'm not engaging on social media, uh, it's been an exercise for just for me, just recognizing privileges, um, coming to grips with them, um, and, and I think really just acknowledging the fact that they're there is a huge first step. Uh-huh. Um, but through recording the podcast. Uh, you know, I keep telling Garrett, just because you realize that you have a privilege in one spot doesn't mean everything else falls off. You know, you're still going to find other areas and it's still going to mess with you. Uh, you're still going to have discoveries is basically what I'm saying. So, uh, while I'm not engaging, um, doing the podcast has, has given me some skills to engage with other white people to try to you know, let's, let's face it, like I was when we first started recording, loads of good intention and horrible execution, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and yeah. so with family and friends, I've, I, I think that I've had an impact in that regard to try to help people realize it and understand that it's okay and you, and you need to realize it to start dealing with it. 
Well, I, I think so often that I, I really like that, um, that thing you just mentioned, Garrett, about, you know, there's only one us, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's digital, real life, whatever, it is you. I hope people think about that because I think it's easy to kind of disassociate yourself. Well, I'm this person, you know, with my friends, with my family, but I'm this person online, you know, or, or something like like that that is not necessarily the two don't gel yeah um necessarily but i also think that 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 work of you know recognizing privilege speaking with family speaking with friends doing the work completely offline and maybe not so visible is also super important Oh yeah, that's probably the most important. Yeah, but, but we have to have the conversations out loud because folks won't even do that. Right. Totally. Okay. If if that work was being done, you know, some of the the big structural things that are in our face wouldn't wouldn't be as big. You know. So you know th- that's why I I feel uh, so uh, validated and being out and loud and proud about these things because they've uh, gone unnoticed and untalked about for too long. You know, certainly in classical music. But I mean, I'm, I'm sure the same uh, can be said uh, across every uh, every single field. So, um, yeah, totally. I, 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 I I agree that uh, you know the the offline work uh, is important. I would say it's the most important. I would also say that it hasn't been happening, unfortunately. That's true. Very true. I want to get back to the talking about your guys's uh, the structure of your podcast. Can you just explain the accidentals? Okay. Um, I'm sure you probably did at some point, but we, yeah, uh, we had the we had the idea of like a fight me section, you know, like the person sitting at the <laughs> desk, you know, such and such, and I think this way, fight me. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning idea, and then Garrett started to chew on it, and the accidentals came about from yeah. Um, so you know, at the beginning of the podcast, I wanted to. Uh, create this uh, section where um, people could, you know, kind of just know what's going on or what or, or what we're talking about. So, um, trying to think as, as punny as I could uh, <laughs> in, in the whole classical music scheme, I thought of accidental. So, you know, in in music, uh, let's say you have a, a line or, or a melody, and according to the key signature, this is supposed to be a B flat, but there's an accidental there that says it's a natural, you know, or there's an accidental that says something is a a flat or a sharp. So uh, I I took that concept um, to, uh, as far as adding to, you know, something that's happened um, in uh, in our week. So, you know, I'll talk about how something fell flat with me or uh, how Scott had a sharp reaction to something. Uh, When it comes to corrections from the previous opus or just uh, shout backs. I usually mark those as a natural. Maybe we made a mistake on something we said. Uh, maybe we fact checked something. You know, so we'll mark what we said uh, with a natural. So, so that's kind of what the the idea uh, of the of the first movement is when we're checking our accidentals. Just like you should when you play a piece of music. People don't mm-hmm. always, and that's how you get those second and third takes because they didn't check their accidentals. You see, so that's what, so we're trying to take care of that business on the podcast. Well, that that clears it up. For oh, I'm sure. Especially. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So um, I asked you guys to bring some music that you've featured on Triloquy before. So let's talk about the first piece that you brought. And this is a piece by the Phantom and the Phoenix and the Illharmonic Orchestra with their track Double Trouble. Who are they? How did you find them? And why did you choose this for tonight? Yeah, so um, well before Triloquy, um, before even my um, my career in radio and media, um, I saw somehow this tweet of someone trying to put together a hip-hop orchestra. And I was like, oh, well, what is this? This sounds interesting. So I followed the link, you know, did what I was supposed to do, and... Um, sent um, an audition. I got my bassoon and made a video of uh, myself playing a couple R&B tunes. Um, Fast forward, um, they asked me to play with them um, in their Carnegie Hall debut in New York. So I I flew to New York City and um, and performed uh, with this, you know, ill harmonic orchestra um, at Carnegie Hall, the third um, hip hop headliner Carnegie Hall has ever seen, you know, so uh, in uh, in part, uh, you know, uh, a historic uh, performance Uh, from there, uh, the group uh, whose members are sort of scattered everywhere have kept in touch the gigs that we can make it to. Um, we do the ones uh, we don't. We can. I've I've performed with Il Harmonic five or six times now. So um, as I started uh, my career in radio and started uh, really exploring race and classical music, uh, they were automatically uh, one of the first subjects for one of my uh, first interviews ever. Uh, so fast forward, you know, we have Triloquy. Um, they were coming through the Twin Cities where we are doing a show. So I thought it would be great uh, to feature them uh, to sort of. Uh, service promo for that uh, excuse me and to um you know just kind of add to the the conversations we're trying to have on the podcast i mean a hip-hop orchestra is kind of you know the core of uh the things that uh triloquy is here to talk about and uh to explore so um i i think uh the the conversations they have about opening up the concert hall um to to more genres to more ideas um is really pertinent and double trouble um is a really great example of uh, how they work together uh, professionally um, and artistically um, as, as this couple just really uh, breaking down uh, what classical music has been and, and uh, giving people a hint of what it, it could be in the future. The the song uses uh, Rossini's Barber of Seville mm-hmm. as the, it, um, you know, kind of the the track behind them. Yeah. And um, their sound really, I listened to a couple of their other tracks when you sent me that one and their sound really reminds me of kind of earlier hip hop when sampling was, was a bigger part of creating tracks as opposed to just straight up production of something new. Well, um, they would, they would be really happy to uh, hear you say that because, (laughs) you know, a, a lot of what they do, um, is inspired by those early days of hip hop, you know, and and those are conversations that uh, we've had uh, on the podcast with them. Um, but um, hold on, so the er- the early uh, w- there was something else you said that that sparked something that I was uh, gonna say, but I don't know. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'll say yeah. Here it is. Sorry, I, I lost it for a second, but it's back. Um, but but I think it's important to note that 
um, you know, the recordings are one thing, but what they're really dedicated to is um, having that orchestra. So you will never see them perform with a backing orchestral track. You will always mm-hmm. see them performing with an orchestra because they really believe in that. So um, the the production side of things uh, is 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 really great and something that uh, Jeffrey uh, has has uh, has become really good at when it comes to uh, recording and reproducing uh, these tracks for people to learn who they are um, but at their core uh, they're uh, they're a duo dedicated uh, to having that live orchestra on stage every time they perform I mean that that's yeah that's incredible because I mean first of all when you think the financial situation of you know hiring an orchestra to play with you when it would be so easy to to do it you know, just digitally or something. That's that's real dedication. That's, Absolutely. I mean, that's and, awesome. and we talk about the cost of that and, and the hoops they have to jump through to uh, get the money they need to put on a concert and pay all the musicians. When you have that Barbara of Seville, you know, those budgets, you know, you've worked in theater, so you know about that. So imagine makeup and costumes and, and hiring an orchestra yeah. and some SOB conductor to yell at the orchestra <laughs> and then some stage <laughs> manager, you know. So we have all the money for that. But we don't have the money for a hip hop orchestra, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What you drinking there, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, <laughs> this is uh, a little bit of Jefferson bourbon. Oh, okay. we're drinking bourbon. Okay. Oh, yeah. we see. We came with. He he's got the guns. We got knives. That's right. We brought beers. <laughs> <laughs> but does that? But does and help me, Scott. Does that make sense about what I'm saying about all the money we're willing to throw into what we've seen before instead of investing in what could actually make the concert hall experience different? Yeah, I know. And it seems like, um, you know, we talked about this before. It seems like even though we have hundreds and hundreds of new operas that are coming out every year. It's it's the same old. It's the same old. And, you know, we're getting new treatments of it. Oh, we're going to set it in the Roaring Twenties this Mm -hmm. time, though. Mm. Or we're going to... Um, you know, make everybody do it in kabuki. Right. It, great. It's still the same story, though. Right? Yeah, Mozart's Magic Flute. I love it. I've seen it a lot. There are other operas, you know, and yeah. to to loop this back to um, Il Harmonic, you know, just the concert hall. I'll, I'll tell a quick, quick, quick anecdote. So uh, one of the performances I did with the Il Harmonic uh, was New Year's Eve at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., you know, a big gig uh, for the Il Harmonic Orchestra. So, um, you know, we're on stage, you know, getting uh, ready um, and they open the doors and walking into the hall is just the most random mix you have folks in their hip-hop gear um folks uh folks like young kids dressed today you have folks dressed in the classic you know looking like sister soldier with the um you know with the big earrings the women with the big you know so so going back to the classic hip-hop but then you have some of those people some of those white people if i may say who came dressed up in their uh concert best because they saw the word orchestra on the ticket so Come come halftime, some of the people did not stay, okay? <laughs> but some of them did. How so about, you, 
so you have this energy of you know folks dressed like they're ready to go dance on a, a cardboard box outside next to folks in tuxes and gowns dancing and having a great time and it's fun and everyone's chill you know doesn't that sound so much better than sitting quietly and watching the barber of Seville you know that's why I think groups like the Harmonic are so important and why they're stories that are integral to what Triloquy is um, and really the reason why I, I wanted to bring them uh, to you just as an example of you know not only uh, an example of what stories we tell but you mm-hmm. know what the reality could be and the reality we try to speak into existence on Triloquy. Yeah I mean when you were saying like people are coming in the hip-hop gear and the you know the traditional symphony garb or whatever yeah. I mean the the only thing that came to my mind was they're all right exactly I mean exactly. they're all right and wouldn't wouldn't that be beautiful if that was if that was the concert hall you know that it didn't have that stuck upness I guess I mean there are other words for it but um <laughs> bougie you know, yeah bougie <laughs> that's a good one um your I the one of the other tracks I listened to from uh f- uh from the Phoenix and and the Illharmonic was uh, B Boy Meets Beethoven, and that was the name of your podcast. That uh, th- that was the title of that particular episode of the podcast, right? And also, and also the uh, the name of uh, uh, Jeffrey's first album as well. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know that would that paired uh, Beethoven's Fifth with uh, the drum track from Beastie Boys' Paul Revere. Yeah. And, you know, for some kid who's listening to that track out of context, they might just think, oh, that's a beat, that's a string part. But once they dig a little deeper, they find the Beastie Boys and Beethoven. And it actually, it reminded me of being a kid listening to that License to Ill album and loving the track uh, Rhymin' and Stealin'. And then later, as a teenager, finding out, Holy crap, that's the that's when the levee breaks by Led Zeppelin, you know? And I think yeah. in a way that that's what's going on here. It's a musical education. It just creates this web of associations like once you go once you go down that rabbit hole and find Beastie Boys and Beethoven or find uh the Barber of Seville or find this other like the all these other hip hop artists that they're, you know, they are taking their influence from that immediately opens up your own music education. I'll, I'll give a, a real life example. So um, when I was a teenager, like many teenagers, I had a mom get out of my room phase and I listened <laughs> to lots of Evanescence. OK, mm-hmm. Evanescence had a song um, called Lacrimosa that I used to love. And um, one, you know, years later, I learned to play bassoon. I get a gig and um, we're playing Mozart's Requiem and we get to the Mm -hmm. Lacrimosa movement. And it's the same thing. And I'm not only experiencing this on the radio, I'm in an orchestra playing this and I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm thinking about Evanescence, you know. So (laughs) my my connection to that was uh, more genuine. And I actually love telling that story. uh, to kids or even to the audience if sure. I'm presenting it on the radio. So, you know, I think uh, I think all of this meshing, uh, all of the sampling, all of the borrowing um, uh, benefits uh, all genres. And we can be nerds about how Mozart and Bach and all, you know, we can talk about how many times Bach borrowed his own arioso. But, right, his own, borrowed his own Let's stuff. talk about that right. for a minute. <laughs> you go to his oboe, any concerto, the middle movement is going to be that same melody. <laughs> Period. Okay. So let's not even go there. So, you know, it is what it is. Yeah. 
Well, let's listen to this right now. This is Double Trouble by The Phantom and The Phoenix and the Ill Harmonic Orchestra. Most vicious are written, shit ripping And turn your dream into an isolated incident Killer with no remorse and you'll be fortunate to witness it Teach a course to get you endorsed on poison and penmanship Listen, my style's unlimited Bad mamma jamma, cup card carrying membership Any scene, I'm feeling it Part feminist, militant, part heroin villainous We need a TV show so you can know how real it is The truth is you feeling it So in the face you conspicuous to the nice Ridiculous, admit it is so Poetry, so precipitous, full of dope Deliciousness, when asked to buy a ticket You should grip it and go Forget what you know, no key a mess, sick with the blow, kicking the dough, run through a show, was split with the dough, off the rip, no I'm hip to it bro, seen it before, acting shady, I'm a lady and I'm strictly a pro, and yo, me and the Phantom, yo, we blowing the spot, cause we're double, double. trouble and we're bubbling high, yeah, me and the Phoenix, yeah, we blowing the spot, cause we're double, double trouble and we're bubbling high. Season assist, so you'll see to exist. I'm too patient with the most lethal and either of shit. If the police try to get me to flip, yo, I'll be pleading the fifth. Keep it legit, I'm a beast with the spit. Nobody's laughing at your jokes, I'm trashing what you wrote. Matter of fact, leave you gasping as I have you in the yoke. Psychopathic, I'll be clapping as I'm slashing through your throat. Straight massacre your whole brand ambassador, dope. You know my pedigree, flow on point and carry a melody. Rocking the mic steadily, what the hell is you telling me? Don't ever let me think that you jelling me. Better let it be heavily set. Disrespecting Phoenix is a felony. Insane. Flower, chain hang lower, your game's over, remain sober. Give rappers a hangover, membrane blower. Better rapper than this, don't near Noah. Hit you with the flamethrower, escaping the Range Rover. And yo, me and Phoenix, yeah, we blowing the spot. Cause we're double, double. trouble, and we're bubbling high. Hey yo, me and the Phantom, yo, we blowing the spot. Cause we're double, double. trouble, and we're bubbling high. Yeah. Hey, you're still listening. Thank you. Do you want to stay connected with all of the happenings at Adjective New Music? Visit our website at adjectivenewmusic.com and join our mailing list today. That's adjectivenewmusic.com. We're looking forward to sharing our exciting news with you. Before we return to this week's episode, here is a brief interlude featuring the music of Robert McClure, performed by pianist Lucas Wong. So feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Robert McClure's Avail. Thank you. 
And now, let's continue this week's episode of Lexical Tones. I wanted to, before we move on to the next piece, I wanted to kind of talk about, you know, your your job as curators of the podcast, you know, and you were kind of talking about with the last piece, um, you know, kind of what you're looking for. Um, but have you, do, do you kind of have an answer for that? What qualities do you look for in what you curate for Triloquy? Well, along with, um, you know, telling stories that, uh, I feel like people would uh, benefit from hearing, you know, on the philosophical side of things, on the let's change the world side of things. Um, I'm also just trying to entertain at the same time and, and to keep people caught up. So, you know, uh, when I listen to the podcasts that I listen to uh, in and every week, um, I want to hear, um, you know, about whatever drama or whatever news that I may not have made it to. I want to hear their take on what everyone is talking about. And I've really uh, worked hard to try to make Triloquy that. So when it comes to um, the, the you know, that side of production, you know, the, the curation of the music or the conversation. I'm just trying to uh, touch as many bases as I can between making sure people feel like they're in the loop with what's going on, in the loop with what's going on in our lives, and in the loop of, of uh, some of the conversations that are happening uh, in, in terms of what that you know core philosophy is, just breaking down the status quo of classical music, so-called classical music. My hope was that uh, because you know when Garrett would come in to relieve me, he would he would share stories about struggles of being a, a professional musician and the things that he had to go through. The professional and, musicians we air on the radio, sure, you know, yeah. they're not these hypothetical things, but real life, right? And uh, you know the the people who are not principal chairs, um, you know, that are you know probably working another gig on the side to make ends meet. And I think that there is a tendency on, let's, let's say, let's just be honest, I think there's a, a tendency for a lot of white people to make assumptions about the people who are making this music, just as they make assumptions about the music. So what really attracted to me to the podcast, to the, the whole philosophy behind uh, the brand, I guess, is uh, white people need to be hearing this. Okay, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I get that, you know, there's plenty of of younger people of color that are, are listening to it. But it's my hope to get more and more white people to understand that there is struggle and, and issues going on to make this music that you've <laughs> dressed up and, you know, made a date night out of to come in mm-hmm. here performed. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, I mean, there were struggles before pandemic shut everything now down. Right. And now pandemic is just amplifying those struggles tenfold. And, you know, I think I would be remiss if I just didn't add that um, it's not always um, about that black struggle either. You know, the the celebration of of black art and and um, and, and some of the fun stories we have. You know, uh, uh, an interview that uh, sticks out uh, in my mind right now in season one. Um, I interviewed uh, my friend Jessica Majunkin. She she goes by Lady Jess, um, and she was one of the violinists uh, who not only went on tour with Beyonce um, on the run too, but performed at uh, homecoming. 
homecoming at Coachella, which, you know, got headlines everywhere. So, you know, as much as, uh, as Scott said, as much as the white people need to hear about the um, the, uh, the the struggles, um, I think it, it, it lends a, a spotlight uh, for black musicians looking to explore what their career could be that isn't so typical, you know, so it being focused there, but also uh, telling the, uh, the, the white folks, again, Scott, as you say, that, um, you know, we have fun in our own way with this so-called classical music as well. We don't need y'all's Beethoven and Bach. We're over here doing our thing. See, so that that's what I'm talking about. Being a theater guy, I'm about the drama. I'm about, you know, so yeah, there's other things, but I, you know, the, the trill is what gets people through the door. Yeah. Yeah, I think what you just said, like just white people need to hear. Yeah. No matter yeah. what it is, white people need to hear. And yeah. Not just hear, well, they need to listen. And <laughs> and the only reason I put that little tag on it is because, you know, I think about, so we all know the Fugees, you know, yeah. they, they famously said, uh, we don't make our music uh, for white people. That doesn't mean that white people couldn't benefit from hearing it, but they're creating, they're not creating the content in service to white people. And that's the point I need to make. Triloquy is not in service to folks who need to become woke. It's more, it's in service to the people whose stories we're telling and, and giving them a, a, a spotlight just to, you know, paint a different picture again of right. the so-called classical music. Now that doesn't mean that people can't become so-called woke, that there aren't things that white people need to hear. I'm not saying that that's not the case. I just want to make sure that your listeners understand that you know this podcast is not in service to the idea of of awakening people, bringing them to enlightenment, as much as it's about you know making sure that uh, our stories are also in the ether. Well, let's let's talk about the second piece that you brought tonight, and this is a work by Nirmala Rajeshikar and Thanjavar. God damn it! I thought I was going to get through that clean. Um, <laughs> well, okay. Well, let's let's let let's let's address this moment. You know, um, over over time, we have learned how to say um, Tchaikovsky, Rachmaninoff. You know, Genady Rostesvinsky. Yeah. You know, all of all of these uh, uh, European names, and and the and the same bit of equity has never been. Uh, put on, you know, uh, names and ways of saying things from mm-hmm. uh, from other parts of the world, you know. So, and I think that's um, another important part of triloquy is just normalizing that that level of it. Not not to put you on the spot or anything, because I I, I it took we me struggled. a few times to get Bupati's name as well. Yeah, you we know? we struggled, and they were very gracious with both of us. And I think yeah. that's a part of the learning and the growing is becoming comfortable with those moments where you can actually learn, where you need to, you know, uncomfortable bend yourself in a way to you know become a little bit more equitable um you know just just levels to this thing man yeah Mm -hmm. wow (laughs) yeah i even i even wrote it out for myself i practiced it and i still didn't nail it on the on the take but 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 you uh, get the point that that, that yeah oh totally totally yeah yeah. um anyway the uh percut so uh nirmala uh is a player of uh saraswati vina which is an in, uh, instrument in the lute family. And uh, Thanjavar Murugabupathi. Is it Pathi or Pati? Bupati. Yeah, we do. Bupati. He, he went by Bupati. I think that's the easier. Okay. All right. And uh, he is a player of the Miradangam. Maradingam. Thank you. Um, 
which is a two-headed drum that has some similarities to the tabla in its sonic qualities, but it's not played the same way. It's, it's it just a single drum. Ka-dum. Yes, yeah, it yeah. has the it has the ability to slide uh, uh, through notes and everything. And the the Saraswati Vina, that oh man, it, I mean it it kind of has similar aspects to a sitar, but it's way deeper, and you yeah. play it differently. And you can articulate the strings in two different directions because the fretboard is scalloped. Mm -hmm. So she can press down to get one sort of articulation, but also up and down along the fret to get... It's just a a whole different palette of sound that you can get bending the strings. Her left hand is so calloused. It's just, it's, it's it's an, her hand is an amazing, amazing instrument. And, yeah. and you know, you you mentioned the uh, sitar. You know, one of the things that I learned from having uh, Nirmala in the studio was that you know those instruments very much represent um, a South Indian uh, tradition, yeah. while instruments that we know to be Indian, like the sitar, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, come from the north. You know, so just the again, just the different levels of, uh, of of nuance there is with this music and these sounds that we don't spend as much time with as we should. I, I think that uh, it was really important for her to lay that distinction out to uh, let people know that there's far more to Indian uh, classical music or their uh, traditional music than just what has made it onto recordings over here stateside. Yeah, we've uh, we've actually had a couple um, composers who have engaged with uh, Carnatic music uh, before, um, Marina Esmel. Um, Anna Srinivasan or uh, Asha Srinivasan um, before, so uh, it's it's really interesting that you know, I mean, just like just like there is no one particular American music, there is no one Indian music, there is no one Chinese music or anything. Right. And 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 again, you know, the significance of of not only getting to hear. Uh, uh, Normala and Bupati play, but getting to hear them talk about um, their experiences and just putting context uh, around it, you know, just lays out uh uh, the 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 issue in in classical music, you know, that we did spend the time learning the difference between Ravel from France and Rodrigo from Spain, and um, and Hardy from Ireland and Tchaikovsky from Russia. You know, I could go on. Uh, 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 Jacques from uh, Bohemia, you know, but when we think of uh, Indian classical music, we're thinking of one thing, you know, amongst, you know, a billion people, literally, right? The right. subcontinent of Africa, you know. Right. You know, the uh, the thing about both of them as players is that to hear them play is an experience alone, because uh, the dress is part of it. Um, before we started to record, both of them took some time to themselves to just get in a, a headspace to play. And um, it was improv. Uh, while you know the 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 spirit has been played many many times. The ragas, the ragas have been played. Yeah, but but it was completely unique to that moment, which mm-hmm. is really what I love because it you'll never hear it that same way again. So we experienced a moment in time, and uh, she was such a wonderful. I, I don't think I've met anybody who was just genuinely as happy. At peace, as, yeah. as as Nirmala is, and that comes through in the way that she treats you. You feel like you're being swaddled, like you know you're just 
being cared for when you're in her presence. And then she starts playing the music and all you can do is float along. You're just floating, riding that wave with them. And the thing that really resonated with me with the, with the interview was the fact that she talked about the notes in between and she makes this analogy of a train ride. And, you know, there might be a lot of people and maybe it's raining in one point and that sounds away and, you know, you're grumpy and, oh, but then you stop and you found, ni- you found a nice lunch and, you know, maybe you got to see the sunshine a little bit and that sounds different. And so all of that makes its way into the improvisation. And some of the notes that don't necessarily land on a note that we would consider uh, in a place that we would consider pleasing um, or that we would compose with, that's part of it. And, mm-hmm. and as an amateur that sometimes makes the clunky notes or something, that kind of made me feel like, oh, okay, well, this, maybe this is the note that I needed in that moment. So their performance and their interview both intertwined for me as uh, just a, a way to uh, acknowledge this exact moment in time and the notes that come out are the ones that you need. And I don't know if you uh, remember, you talk about that moment in time. I remember she started with one drone and goes, oh, it's, actually, it's a little cloudy outside. We should, you know, so right. it really was oh, just yeah. uh, a performance that was particular to that moment that we were lucky enough to get on tape. His drone was on an app, by yeah. the way, too. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is awesome. You know, <laughs> technology meeting music, you know, and ancient music, a music way older than Bach and, and all those folks, you know. Yeah, and, you know, um, we don't have... Uh, the recording of her vocalizing, but she also did uh, uh, some vocal improvisation that... I think there's uh, an example of that in the interview, actually. There, there is in the interview, but yeah. not in the uh, right. the recorded version we have on YouTube. But um, what she is a musician uh, beyond compare, uh, just a, a wonderful person, both her and Bupati. A couple, a couple weeks ago on the podcast, you guys were talking about improvisation and your, your kind of maybe grappling with improvisation in a way like Garrett as a classical musician has improvisation been part of your life and Scott for you as a guitarist or even as a actor or a playwright you know how how is improvisation kind of shaped you guys I'll, I'll tell you on on you know as being classically trained um being able to improvise would have been the um you know how how could, how could I say you know that extra skill? So it right. it unfortunately was not a part of my training. I can improvise okay now because I've lived some life and I'm an, an adult. You know, but you know <laughs> when you're when you're 22 years old, you know, in music school, unfortunately that's just not a part of the training. Even though we can be geeks and go back to the uh, Baroque days, you know, when improvisation was a huge part of it. If I play a Vivaldi concerto. Um, there's going to be improvisation involved because, you know, I have a historical understanding of it. But uh, improvisation, uh, as as we know it today, uh, unfortunately, is not a a part of the training. Um, And and yet another example of, of, you know, where we've sort of fallen short traditionally. I think that that's a mark of a of a really great musician of oh, somebody yeah. who can spill, fill that space and you know do it convincingly in classical. Um, you know, you hear it. I used to be the jazz music director at uh, the station that I came here from, and you know, uh, it was nothing for me to program ten, fifteen to twenty minute 
um, you know, Coltrane's uh, My Favorite mm-hmm. Things is what, 13 minutes mm-hmm. or yeah. 14 minutes or something like that. So the idea of improvisation was was never unfamiliar for me, especially coming from the theater background. And I'm a co-founder of a theater in Omaha um, where being able to maintain your character while laughter is going on around you or if a prop fails or something, you know, you have to, you know, you have to find your way through it, which that always seemed to be the challenge for me. You know, maybe you can speak to this as a classical musician. It just seems like it's, it's got the corners, you know, you have to, you have to do what's on the page. Isn't that limiting? I mean, I mean, I mean, and, and I think it could uh, be expanded to so many different careers. I mean, let's talk about uh, being on the radio. Yes. That person who can craft the the perfect break and make it fit all together. That that is a great host. He is, he or she is uh, doing the art exceptionally. Now what happens when for some reason you have 15 more seconds (laughs) or a power outage, if you can't make your way through it, without what's on the page, you know, that that's sort of, you know, a a weakness, right? So, you know, being able to improvise, you know, in music and beyond is is so uh, important. And to, you know, to loop this back to uh, Nirmala, you know, something that we saw a phenomenal um, example of as it applies to ragas, as it applies to, um, you know, uh, ancient uh, Indian tradition, even as as we noted before, as it applied to that moment in time, the weather that day. Right, yeah. It was kind of dreary and cold, and and that played an influence in it. But uh, they began and ended together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when you have a conversation now, and do other things. Yeah, <laughs> this <laughs> For piece the most that part. we're sorry, go on. <laughs> <It's okay>. <laughs> <laughs> this piece that we're going to hear um, is this is this a traditional piece or is this something composed by the two of them? It, I mean, composed is, 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 is a weird word to say right here um, in the traditional way of thinking about composition because so much of this is improvised, but I'm assuming there is structure behind it. Right. Yeah. It's an ancient, um, okay. uh, I guess, raga, right? Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an ancient raga that I guess you could make as long or as short or as... Uh, happier as morose because in the interview she points out that there are thousands and thousands and thousands and i used to remember the number 36,480 some odd you know but um rather than rather than composing or improvising in a key you're you're composing or improvising in a mood Mm -hmm. you know which was so cool um, yeah, and 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 the, but the, but you're right. The structure was there, and 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 just to go back to the uh, the train analogy that Nirmala made and that Scott brought up, you know. So consider the song a trip from City A to City B. Um, consider the performance, the unique things that could have happened on that train ride on that train journey that day. I think I think that's the, the the best way that I sort of think about it. So the piece is composed, um, but because music um, in that tradition is as organic as everything else, you know, that composition is performed based on that moment in time. So that's what you hear uh, in the recording, uh, an ancient raga performed in that moment in time. Right, yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that improvisation kind of gives us, whether it be in a particular tradition or whether it be in just new classical music or jazz or, or whatever, I think it challenges us to eliminate the composer as genius 
mindset. Hmm. Mm. That's because interesting. when you speak about improvisation, that delineation between like the the high-minded creator and the lowly like music executor, the person playing that, it completely falls apart. Because I mean, what what is improvisation if not composing on the spot? And what is composing if not improvis- uh, improvising slowly? This is this is interesting. I've never thought about this, but I would extend that beyond um, improvisation. I have performed under bright lights and high pressure the rite of spring too many times <laughs> to not get my flowers for playing that. Stravinsky is not here. Right. Garrett, Garrett is here, you know? So I think the point you're making um, should also ring true for what is composed, you know, and not sure. to take anything away from the composer, but the art of composition is um, as important as the art of performance, whether that is improvisation or uh, exactly what's on the page. Right, that's my right. hot take anyway. I, I, I totally think you're. I, I totally think you're correct. I think that improvisation is just the one thing that, like, you can point to as a very clear example of like this is where it all breaks. You know, Absolutely. so like, let's just eliminate that composer genius mindset altogether because it really doesn't exist. And then, of you know. course, I mean, and even then, you would probably have the your music person to say, well, such and such actually wrote out the changes. So really, uh-huh. you're still playing his thing, you know. So uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah. I think the, the tennis ball is always going to go back and forth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. But but but, but I, I agree with you. I, th- I think that's a very interesting and uh, provocative way to think about it, you know, eliminating this uh, composer genius um, sort of status. But but as I said before, we can eliminate it with what's not eliminated, but, you know, just pair it with what is purely composed as well. I mean, think about some of these concertos, for goodness sake. You know, right. think about yeah. these incredible violin and piano concertos that people spend their lives trying to uh, figure out and work on and, and perfecting, you know, that is as great as the composition itself. If you ask me mm-hmm. the performance of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's interesting because, you know, music and dance, I, I suppose, you know, film theater too. I really, we, I think we view all of these art forms in the way that we view visual art. Mm. Like the creator is the creator and they're the one to be celebrated. But almost every other art form relies on collaboration. Yeah, because I guess we don't, I guess sometimes we'll leave the movie and say, oh, wow, Tarantino is such a genius. But, you know, it seems like more often than not, we're like, oh, my God, Harrison Ford was X, Y, and Z. Or, Mm -hmm. oh, did you see Denzel Washington? Or, you know, so those are like artist-centered you know, uh, performances while, you know, sometimes it's not that way. I have to say, though, that it is pretty cool to write something and then hear somebody else talk about the actors and the way that they interacted and mm. what was cool about it. Because I, I've written some plays and, and it's cool to be a fly on the wall and hear them talk about the performers and how they hate this one. And, oh, but I, this <laughs> one here is really, I really like this character. And I'm sitting over there just beaming to get that sort of reaction out of somebody. Probably not unlike, you know, if you're able to move somebody with your bassoon solo. And then you go over there with your black turtleneck on and your scarf, and you're like, oh, actually. <laughs> Drinking vermouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Well, uh, on that note, let's... Uh, <laughs> we got to go and get some vermouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, let's listen to this piece. So the piece that you guys recorded and featured on your podcast is Ananda Nada Ma Duvar, um, which, is, uh, which means the joyful dance of Shiva. This is being performed by Nirmala Rajeshakar and Bhupati. Thank you. 
<laughs> All right. So let's now talk about the two of you. Scott, tell me how you got into broadcasting and radio and playwriting. Parking. I love it. That's the short version. Now, I went to, a, I went to the University of Nebraska at Omaha for my undergrad, and it was a commuter campus at the time. It was one of these instances where if you showed up on campus after 9.30, you weren't going to get a parking spot, and you'd have to go to one of the satellite parking spots, uh, parking uh, lots and, and take the shuttle, and nobody wants that. So I found that there was a public radio station on campus. I needed an internship, and it just so happened that Whenever a door opened for an opportunity there at the station, I just happened to be standing there. So uh, over the course of 14 years, I did um, every shift and made it all the way up to assistant program director. And uh, I was doing the morning show when I was actually hired away to do um, to uh, do music through the night with American Public Media. But uh, as far as theater, that was that was the original goal. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I started doing theater when I was in sixth grade and, uh, I got it in my mind that I was going to be in movies and I was going to do voices for cartoons and all that kind of stuff. And I realized that that probably wasn't going to materialize and I needed to find a side. I, I needed, to, I needed to find something that would pay. And then theater became my hobby. It became mm-hmm. a way to make art and to, uh, step into somebody else's shoes, you know, to to um, build characters and try to make people feel. Um, so uh, that is um, how I got into radio. But the you know the the playwriting and everything, I I think that it's only natural for uh, an actor to uh, at one point in time step across and try to write the words, much like mm-hmm. a a player will start to do more composition. And like I was saying to Garrett here earlier, I really started to find, even though I wasn't uh, being, I wasn't uh, auditioning and being cast, uh, I was finding an amazing creative release through the writing process. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, it really allowed me to exercise um, different creative muscles that I, I just neglected for the longest time. So I want to ask, I also understand that you're an avid beer maker, right? Um, a brewer. And that's what you guys are drinking right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Garrett. Cheers. Garrett has the last of uh, the Dunkelweizen, Ooh. my Slam Dunkelweizen, and uh, this is my house ale, which is on tap pretty much all the time. It's called High Sierra Pale Ale. It um, uses all West Coast hops, two grains and proportions of only which I know. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what, what is like, I, I know this might be a hard question, but what has been your like most interesting beer or favorite beer that you've ever made? <laughs> um, uh, I've, I've got a side project at work called Hop Notes where I pair uh, composers with classical music and go and interview uh, a brewer and we talk about it over a beer. And I got an idea for a chocolate orange stout from Whoa. one interview that I did. That, that's a winter thing. That's a, a winter yeah. brew. But there's uh, a, a jar of marmalade, um, the uh, rinds of probably a dozen oranges, uh, dark chocolate, 
and it's served on nitro, so it's really silky and creamy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, people ask for that by name. <laughs> <laughs> so then, Garrett, how did you get your start in music? You said, you know, it was primarily through the bassoon, correct? Yeah, I mean, in um, in seventh grade, um, I, you know, up to that point, I had always. Um, been a singer primarily, you know, and um, I, I felt like I was a little too good for the school choir. So uh, I decided that it might be cool um, to learn to play an instrument. So, yes, yeah, seventh grade, um, I was uh, given a bassoon by the band director. It was pretty random, but um, it happened <laughs> and, it, and it turned into a, a career that I walked away from to get on the radio. <laughs> Would you go back? No, no, I wouldn't. Um, because, and, and, you know, that, that gets into, uh, why I made the decision to transition into media and not that I don't play at all anymore. You know, I, I still take gigs and I, and I definitely still practice, but, um, you know, the, the urgency that I feel to, uh, to change things outweighs my personal desire to sit on stage and play Beethoven four for the kajillionth time or, right. or, or, you know, and we can go down that conversation again, you know, but you know, the, the opportunity, um, what was given to me to, to have a bigger platform than playing bassoon with an orchestra. Um, and I took it. it it's an opportunity that I don't take for granted at all. Fantastic. I, I love that they gave you a bassoon kind of by chance of all the instruments they gave you pro- possibly one of the hardest ones for a seventh grader to get around. Well, I didn't I mean, get I didn't get the horn, thank goodness. So <laughs> that's all also true. Also true. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, guys, this has been really great, really fun. Um, before we go, can you give people your social media handles, your website? Obviously, go subscribe to the Triloquy podcast on pretty much whatever, wherever you can find a podcast, you can find Triloquy, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, yeah. As far as my things, um, uh, all social media, uh, Garrett McQueen, at Garrett McQueen. You can get more information about me at GarrettMcQueen.com. Um, as, as you've already uh, said, uh, subscribe to uh, Triloquy, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also uh, check out the podcast and other extras, including uh, videos and, and articles and all that sort of thing um, at Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. I'm not on Facebook anymore, and that's been great. But your phone number is. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, um, but my uh, Instagram handle is L Scott Blankenship, S underscore B underscore Triloquy on, on Twitter, but don't go there. I don't. He's I don't just go. there to sit on the porch and look. Right. So, um, but scottblankenship.com. Guys, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, our pleasure. Glad to. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.